0: From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from a very small state. The Democratic primary for Rhode Island governor is less than six months away. Between now and then, we'll be interviewing all of the major candidates here in Rhode Island Report. Today, we're talking to Democratic candidate Dr. Luis Daniel Munoz. We'll talk about where he stands on the major issues, why he calls his opponents performative, and how he faces a huge fundraising disadvantage. That's after this quick break. All right, welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Luis Daniel Munoz. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Munoz. Thank you for the opportunity. So to begin with, tell us why you're running for governor.
1: Yeah, I mean, for a lot of reasons. I wish I had just one. But growing up in Central Falls, uh, seeing what I experienced, uh, seeing my family struggle, my mother as a single mother, my father as a person who was struggling with addiction, and then just realizing that many other people in the community were struggling uh, as a result of these perpetual inequities uh, that, that we experience in, in the United States uh, from our education system and the disparities uh, that exist there. Having seen it in Central Falls High School with our amazing teachers, but always fighting just to get good textbooks. Um, you know, All those things, I think, informed my, my passion for change. It wasn't until I reached Rhode Island College, studied philosophy, that I really came to grips with the role that I could have in affecting that change. And it started with helping people and that's ultimately what led me to medical school. I received my doctoral degree at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. Um, Realized that healthcare can't always be changed from within, so I leaped into industry to try to address more of the systemic challenges around access and affordability and its full circle. Uh, In a weird way, uh, jumping into industry brought me back to uh, that initial you know, kid in Central Falls that was trying to understand why the things were the way they were. And the answer I came up with is, you know, we have policies and policies that tend to be driven by people who have not had lived through that struggle, that is. Um, And so that's when I decided to run for the first time. And that was back in uh, 2016,
0: though the race was in 2018. So you've never held public office before. Why start with the governor's office?
1: Yeah, I don't see this as, and I, people might debate this, but I don't see this as a, a vocation. It's a it's a service. And if you treat something as though it's a vocation, and it's not to uh, discount the skill sets that one can build over time, but I think that w- we see a lot of self-preservation in politics. People want to keep their jobs. They want to be reelected, and it's at the expense of programmatic change at times. And I think we often rationalize, oh, what good compromise is? Well, is it good compromise when we see that we're in the middle of a pandemic and healthcare systems continue to increase their prices insurers continue to increase their prices i don't think that's healthy compromise so the way i the way i view politics is it is a service and so what skill sets do you bring to the table and can you utilize them to affect the programmatic changes that are needed
0: one other candidate who's never run for public office before is Helena Folks, the former CVS executive. She entered the race, though, with nearly a million dollars in her, her campaign account. You have about 3000 How are you going to be able to compete with that amount in the campaign account?
1: It's, it's an important question, and it's also important to lean into the fact that money is really the, the, the biggest barrier and biggest challenge we have in electoral politics in, in the country. Someone who comes in with a million dollars, one has to ask themselves, what kind of uh, deals have they made? What compromises have they made before even becoming governor? And, you know, I, I have a hard time believing that that many people would get up and over the course of a couple of months donate a million dollars without assuming that something is going to work out to their benefit. So if we're going to continue to rely on who has the most money um, and and whether they should win, nothing changes. My biggest challenge ahead is getting on the debate stage. Here's what I know. There, there's going to be a criteria. It's going to... Uh, be set up to keep certain candidates out that haven't raised a certain number. Uh, I need to raise that number. I'm confident that I will reach that number once it's shared, and I'll be on the debate stage, and I'll let Rhode Islanders decide.
0: Governor McKee has announced that he'll run for a four-year term. What's your argument for replacing him?
1: Yeah, so, I, you know, I've I've had an opportunity to serve on the state's equity council. I've seen how this administration moves, how it thinks about issues around not just equality, but equity and I feel like it is disconnected. We have so many issues to address through a lens of equity. An administration that has proven that it does not understand it should not be the administration managing $1.1 billion in ARPA funds that are an opportunity for us to truly transform our infrastructure and the programs that are serving marginalized and working families.
0: Give me an example there, though. Where How has the McKee administration come up short in terms of equity and equality? Yeah, well, I mean the vaccine rollout was was one clear
1: one. So in general, like I had my criticisms for the previous administration when McKee came in I waited. I paid attention. I thought that he would respond to the call for vaccine. Equity. In other words, having clinics that were directed towards historically marginalized communities that were not being vaccinated in high enough numbers. He didn't. And this was March 25th, I believe, that we had the press conference. The Boston Globe covered uh, that press conference when myself and other community leaders called the administration out on not doing enough. And what was interesting is what I believe a leader would have done at that point is respond by providing not just the infrastructure. But the dollars, the human
0: resources necessary to get the job done. I remember that you were up on the state house steps with Pastor Jenkins and others, and you were calling for vaccine events in uh, urban areas. Did, didn't they respond by doing some something at the at the dunk? And and some of didn't they have some follow up events? Yeah. So they called it a vaccine-driven,
1: uh, equity-driven vaccination clinic. Right. Right. That was the framing. I wanna lift up the National Guard here and say that it, it was amazing to collaborate with the National Guard. The National Guard stood beside community leaders. It was the community leaders, non-paid people from the community that were running organizations, over 100, that came together, picked up the phone, support like walked people through the registration process. We had clinics, even at the uh, Cambodian temple on Hanover Street, where uh, 155 people were registered right there. We were given char- uh, bus, buses, charter buses. We actually ran the routes. <laughs> we managed to schedule for the buses. We put in all the work because we cared. Over 5,000 people were vaccinated because they chose to, but we thought that we were setting up a template for the administration to continue to use that template, that community-driven, more than equity, because equity begins there, right, locally, community-driven approach, and they did not. They would not even print papers for us because they did not, quote, have the budget. To print papers.
0: And you are on the equity council, did the administration listen to what the members were saying? Reacting and listening
1: are two different things, in my opinion. Did they react to what we were saying if we said it loud enough and publicly? Yes, the administration reacted. Uh, did it listen? No, because the moment that we set a template, a model that works, uh, they just didn't implement it, despite our calls for that model to continue to be implemented. And if you look at a chart for the amount of vaccines that were provided to individuals that fall within those racialized categories. The peak on that chart is within those two weekends that we were operating.
0: One of your opponents in the governor's race is the Secretary of State Nellie Gorbear. She just proposed a pause in the state gas tax in response to the rising gas prices we see across the country. What did you think of that proposal?
1: Yeah, I think that it makes sense for Rhode Islanders in in difficult times to keep money in their pocket, but there's just so much more that we can do. And I largely think it's performative when the call to action is for something to happen that requires the legislature to agree with you. Uh, What can we do immediately? What can a governor do? I believe that we can have uh, tax exemptions for tangible property taxes in working with municipalities. And there's a creative way of doing that to support the micro-businesses. I believe that we can expand our supplemental wage program and allocate ARPA dollars to including other professions beyond um, childcare professionals uh, to receive supplements on their wages to, again, support not just the minimum wage earners that should have a livable wage, but also the, the local economies that, for the most part, soon enough, we're going to face the next economic recession, and they're going to need the, the help. So why not propose that? Is that is that in any way impeding her ability to garner certain donors? Maybe. I'll also say there's another opponent that, um, s- you know, slept in a tent for a day, and assumes that for doing that that they have done enough to address the issue of homelessness and the housing crisis. In many of the things being done, my concern is that they're very performative, because the bold actions that are needed can be stated with a number of dollars going to a specific area in a certain way. And so what I mean by that is, do we want the money to go to homelessness and set up a categorical fund?
0: And and Matt Brown and Senator Cynthia Mendez were sleeping outside the state house in tents to raise awareness about the homelessness crisis. And they afterwards took credit for pressuring the McKee administration to create more emergency shelter beds. Do you disagree? Do you think it was strictly performative?
1: When it comes to the housing crisis, the lot in Providence, uh, where we had plenty of homeless people that were setting up their tents to sleep, you know, who, who was standing with them? You know, we, We've had a progressive journalist there calling out the issue, uh, Senator Tiara Mack. I was there trying our best to figure out what is a safe solution. How can we utilize resources to get people off of the street? What we saw was everyone looking away right up to the point where that lot was bulldozed down, where all the tents were were, were thrown away. On the other hand, uh, we look at uh, Rent Relief Program. Who was calling out issues with the Rent Relief Program? Representative Leonella Felix, and I was helping with community-driven rent relief clinics to help people apply, because Rhode Island Housing was not doing its job in releasing those funds. The McKee administration eventually reacted. But my point is that my opponent, who slept in a tent, was not there. And so who is really willing to risk it all for Rhode Islanders and to improve, like I said, the infrastructure?
0: Yeah, I remember uh, seeing you down there, there was a homeless encampment in the, in the West End. And at the time, you said that based on the data, there's no reason the city and state can't solve the challenge of homelessness in Rhode Island. So what more would you do as governor to address that crisis? Yeah, I, I'm a be- big believer in
1: mixed housing, uh, so when we talk about affordable housing, we should also think about low income and public housing. I think that the way you break this culture that's been built out of over time of people looking down on one another is by bringing them together and providing some layer of unity. Uh, so mixed housing is one solution. The type of housing, yes, it should be environmentally friendly. Yes, we need to deal with local zoning laws. I think we need to incentivize it. I don't know why we have to incentivize, but we do. <laughs> in the Rhode Island, it shows that cities and towns don't necessarily want to move equally on issues around affordable housing, housing let alone low-income housing. We also have to acknowledge that you know, warm houses and shelters can be different in terms of their policies. People that are seeking a, a, a warm house in Westerly may not find too many beds. So where are they going? Are they moving inward towards Providence or outward towards Connecticut? And that's a problem in of itself. These things are by design. Do we have enough beds for people to stay near their support systems? Too often we don't talk about support systems. Even someone homeless has a support system. When there was a, an expectation that the inca- individuals in the encampment would just go to Warwick, it made no sense. Many of them were plugged into mental health services here in
0: Providence. Another big crisis facing the state is climate change. What, what's one concrete step you would take as governor to address it?
1: We need to think creatively about how we, yes, expand solar, but not at the expense of trees. Um, and so, yes, we can innovate around infrastructure and how we're building out solar, whether it's rooftop solars or pillars on top of water reservoirs with, with solar. Uh, expanding wind is something that I think needs to be a community-state discussion. You know, how we can do that responsibly, how we can consider the concerns that people have expressed around the building that out. Uh, I think that we also need to um, understand that. There's a short-term sacrifice that the entire country seems to be making. Where if you want to reach carbon, you know, net carbon zero emissions, you can let's build out, let's expand our, you know, fossil fuel infrastructure temporarily. But you know who suffers? Uh, the kids that live near the port of Providence. You know, we see asthma rates um, associated with higher concentration of air pollutants. So as we look at our path towards renewables and and really completely changing this grid we have, which is reliant on one supplier, uh, we have to also think about how all of these pollution-generating companies for our short, short-term needs are actually creating long-term problems for people in Rhode Island. And so how do we actually develop a, a resource, um, uh, a tax even, yeah, uh, harm tax to ensure that the companies we're using today to help us transition more quickly to renewables are also contributing to the pools of resources we'll need to support the children with asthma and the
0: families who ultimately will develop health conditions as a result of pollution. Rhode Island saw a record number of accidental overdose deaths last year. What's one concrete step you would take as governor to address that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we should never be in short supply of Narcan, um, and but we also know that we're limited by suppliers. With that said, it should never be the case that the state is resisting to uh, any additional investment needed to increase the supply of Narcan and make it available. Um, You know, we, we oftentimes assume that just because Narcan's available that we've solved the problem, but this is a systemic issue. You know, having a father that struggled with addiction, it took a long time for him to understand his addiction, and fortunately, he's been clean for 11 years. But it, it takes time and it takes support, and we need infrastructure around that that goes beyond just a medication. It's, it's social you know social workers. It's supporting our uh, first responders who are dealing with those crisis diversion programs and, and uh, as well as you know more community health infrastructure.
0: Yeah, what do you think of the harm reduction centers that were approved last year? I don't think they've opened yet, but they, the legislature approved them.
1: I think that we should understand that addiction is a, is a disease. And any infrastructure that we can create that can remove the stigma that has contributed to the criminalization of people struggling with addiction
0: is a good thing. Um, One proposal that's come up again this year is to raise the income tax rate on the top 1%. What do you think of that?
1: Yes. There are some CPAs that uh, have commented and said, well... Everybody is paying what, what they should pay at the state level, but no one's talking about in the fact that in Governor Raymond in 2018 passed a, you know, signed off on legislation for a pass-through company tax, and that provides a vehicle for the very wealthy to have tax credits um, given to them in a, in a kind of. I'm not getting into an accounting, but you know, in an indirect way. So, at the end of the day, they're not paying their fair share. Uh, we also know that of all of the things that divide us. At least 95% of us can say we're living at, on some level, paycheck to paycheck, saving up for, for the student loans that our children will collect over time, and so 95% of us are in a top-down struggle. Why shouldn't the
0: top five percent pay their fair share? And I know you're not only running for governor; you're a runner. Yeah. So what's it, what's your running goal for 2022? Yeah, I,
1: you know, I've wanted to. I was a Bellanook on the on the reservation, on the, against the tribe reservation, and. Um, I was like, "What would it be like to run from from the reservation to Central Falls?" Oh. So yeah, yeah, and I, I guess how many w- miles is that? It's over forty. I mean, I, I remember I, I, there was a number I had looked it up on, on the maps. But the reason I didn't rely on the maps is doesn't mean that you can run it, right? Like the yeah, the yeah. running path is what's complicated. You don't want to be on ninety five, yeah. right? And it's going to take some time to trace out a safe path, uh, if there is one, a safe path. But that that's my goal. Aside from that, I. I run because it it just, it frees my spirit. You know, it's it's my time before the sun rises to meditate. And I think we all have fears too. I, I realize this more now than ever before, that sometimes your fears, like center everything you do around your ego because you're so worried. But if you can break past those fears, it's almost like that moment, that death of the ego, like they say spiritually, the moment that you can really start looking at things beyond yourself. And that's what the runs are. I mean, I'm just running through the concerns I have on a daily basis and just running past them and having, you know, a plan of how I can positively impact either the people or the world around me. And that's, that's the same habit I'll bring into being governor.
0: Very good. Dr. Munoz, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. As we interview all of the candidates for governor this year, we want your questions. What would you ask them? Email your ideas to rinews at globe.com. You might hear your question on the podcast. Here are some more stories to check out this week in Globe, Rhode Island. Narragansett town officials are working on a plan to provide free beach and parking passes to members of the Narragansett Indian tribe. My colleague Brian Amaral has the details. My colleague Alexa Gigas has a Q&A with Thorne Sparkman, the founder of a venture capital firm devoted to funding and supporting startups connected to universities such as Brown. And our columnist-turned-sports writer, Dan McGowan, has the latest updates on the Friars in the Sweet 16 of the NCAA Tournament. For these stories and more, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Ahmed Fitzpatrick, see you next week.